Amen. Can we give the Lord a praise offering today? All right. All right, you can have a seat. So I'm just in a great mood today. Just, uh, I think it's you guys. I think it's God. I think it's the extra hour of sleep. I don't know. It's uh, a lot of things, but man, it is good to be in the house of the Lord uh, today. A couple things I just want to remind you of. Um, one is Operation Christmas. So um, one of the things that we do at Christmas, or we're doing this year at Christmas, and our outreach team is working on it really hard, is to identify vulnerable children in Fairfax County um, who may not have an awesome Christmas experience and to kind of help Christmas to happen for them. And uh, our outreach team is working really hard, putting a bunch of projects together, working with partners that we have. Like this is a huge part of our heart is fair, in Fairfax is vulnerable kids, vulnerable kids around the world, but vulnerable kids right here in Fairfax County. And if you wanna help to be uh, a part of that, just uh, go to our website, you can check it out. The projects are gonna close by December 8th, and so we wanna get all of that done prior to then, so if you can go and check that out, be a part of that in some way, there's lots of ways uh, to participate, and again, just go to our website and uh, you can see that. And then the other thing I just wanna say is that we have an amazing security uh, response team here at Fairfax, and at, at some level, I wish we didn't need that right, but we live in a world where that um, is needed and, and especially important in public settings and gatherings like churches, and we just have an amazing faithful team of volunteers that kind of help keep this place safe, and sometimes you may notice them, most of the times probably you don't, but uh, they are a huge part of this community, and it's just really, really cool. And if this is an area that you are passionate about, I just wanna say, we have folks that are on the security team that perhaps have never found a great fit, maybe in any other area of ministry, and then they found out that there was a security team, and they are all in on the security team. And so maybe you fall in that category, I don't want to stereotype, but maybe you fall in that category and would be interested in serving on this team. It's such an amazing team. They have such great community together. And if you're interested in that, just contact Ronnie Cruz uh, at ronniecruz at fairfax.cc, and you can find out everything you need to know about that. All right, uh, the person that uh, kind of makes this weekend work, oftentimes uh, folks that are in many respects like the most important for things are the people that you never see, the people that are behind the scenes, the people that are not up front. And that's certainly true when we come together that so many folks that you never really see are uh, integral in making this gathering just kind of take place and things that we take for granted as we come into the space. And one of those people is Josue Escobar. And Josue is uh, our uh, head of our, all of our production stuff on the weekend. And uh, I wanted you to meet Josue and I, I wanted to do a little interview with him today. So Sue, we call him Sue. Sue, would you come on up here? Would you welcome Sue? All right. So, dude, I just, I just, it does, it, it is not lost on me that you're always back there behind the scenes. Everyone up here has a mic, but now you have the mic, okay? And uh, so we're, we're excited about that. And so I got a couple of questions I want to ask you. One 
is I, I think, you know, um, a lot of people don't really understand even what a production person does. You know, when I was growing up in church, there were like two things you could do. You could be a pastor, a preacher, and you could be a missionary. Like that was it, you know. And it's so exciting to see all of these different expressions of giftedness that now are being used in the life of the church. So tell folks a little bit about just what you do and what production is all about. And yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, I kind of, um, there's a lot of intricate things that are going on on a weekend, but uh, one of the biggest things is just to help facilitate um, our worship and in our creative expression in with what we do with worship, with cameras, with lighting, everything that you hear and you, and you see. Uh, make all of those links come together and work seamlessly and distraction-free to uh, just bring the spirit of worship into this room, online and in person. Yeah, and a lot of times people don't realize how um, important that distraction-free, like when it's distraction-free, and I know that things have changed now because it's not just about the in-person experience, but we have more people watching online yeah. even that we have uh, in the space. and. Being able to do that without distraction, without buffering, without all of that kind of stuff is huge, but it doesn't just happen. Like, it takes folks that are intentional about making that happen, and I know that you're right at the center of all of that, and we don't notice it unless it goes wrong, right? Like, it's just like an offensive lineman in the NFL. Only the holding penalties is the only reason we hear their name, you know? And uh, so you guys do such an amazing job with this. I, I wanted to just ask you a question about Renovate. So we launched Renovate last week, and Renovate is um, about you know renovating um, so many spaces in this building, our, our great room, our coffee shop, our lobby, new production studio, all of that. It's about building homes in Haiti. We're gonna be building a number yeah, of homes exactly. or rebuilding a number of homes that have been devastated by the earthquake, and that's a really cool part of it. But part of it also is about this space and renovating this space. And a lot of it is gonna be uh, you know, technology. We, it's been 16 years we've been in here and we don't think about technology until it doesn't go right <laughs> and it doesn't work and all of that. But technology is so important and the technology we use, and a lot of it hasn't changed really in 16 years since we moved in, which 16 years ago was awesome. But so was our, you know, 25-inch TV that we had 16 years ago, and and uh, the flip phone that we were using. So, um, so I want you to talk about that because a lot of people want to think about, you know, screens and technology and cameras and all that. It kind of feels like flash and show and all that, but it really is about so much more than that. And I know as you think about all of those tools that God provides for us, you think about it in a little different way. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I think about um, just what we do in, in production is as a part of worship. You know, our, our guys, our awesome volunteer team in production, uh, I tell them all the time, worship first, production second. Mm -hmm. um, because we're just as part of what's going up on, what's going on on stage with our worship leaders, with our awesome band, um, and our, in our community, just to express and use and leverage technology um, to express our worship. You know, because God is worthy of our praise and our worship. Um, and I believe, I'm a strong believer in that what happens in this room can also translate on a phone, on a laptop, on a TV screen. Mm. Um, and so, you know, pushing our technology, you know, state-of-the-art technology into the next level, we'll, we'll, we'll only be able to leverage those things more to impact, our, you know, people in the blue seats and online even more so. Yeah, and the opportunities now, that's the thing that's so cool about what we're doing, the opportunities now 
not only are impacting the people sitting in the blue seats, yeah. but impacting those who are watching online. And uh, the opportunity to reach more people with the gospel is probably greater than ever before. And Sway, you are right in the center of that, of helping us to do that as a church. And we're so thankful for uh, your service. We're so thankful for your willingness to use the gifts and talents that you have that certainly are marketable out there in other places, but to use them here to advance the kingdom and see people come to Christ and worship God in intimate, passionate ways is just so amazing. So thank you for what you awesome. do. Thank, thank you. you. Show your appreciation to Sway. Thanks, Sway. Yeah. All right, uh, the other thing I just wanna say about Renovate, we, we kind of launched the public phase of it last week, and um, uh, you know, it's a small capital campaign, so we, I've had some folks who have asked, you know, like, it's a million dollar capital campaign, and when we've done capital campaigns in the past, they've just been bigger. We've had $7 million and $10 million capital campaigns, and some folks have asked, like, you know, why are we doing a capital campaign for what is a relatively small uh, amount of money, money that we could probably borrow, money that we could take out of our budget, all of that. And all of that's true, but I kind of want you to hear something, just uh, kind of hear my heart on this and why we're doing this. One, we could borrow money to do this and the bank would uh, loan us a million dollars in a second. Our balance sheet is good, our finances are good, all of that. But we've come to a place in the history of our church where we don't want to incur any more indebtedness, that we feel like that season is done for us and that we are now reducing debt and we wanna do everything on a cash basis. We wanna do everything with the resources that God provides in that moment. And I think that's a huge thing. That's a decision that our board has made and I resonate with that and feel like, yeah, that's the season that we're in. The second thing is that we could probably take all of this you know, out of savings or out of our, our budget but we really wanna do this in a way that does not jeopardize in any way our ongoing mission, our ongoing ministry, our ongoing outreach, all of that. We want the giving to renovate, to be over and above all of that, to not jeopardize anything. We don't wanna sacrifice kind of our mission and ministry on the altar of this initiative and this capital campaign. And so that's why we've, we've developed a capital campaign for it. And, uh, and so last week we gave you a lot of information about it. You can get all that, if you missed it, you can get all that information online. And um, now we're asking folks really during this month, and if you are like in a position to go ahead and do that today, that'd be awesome whether you're watching online or whether you're in the place to, to make a commitment. And the commitment that you make, you can identify whether you want that um, to be something that you can fulfill by the end of the year. If you're in a position, God's blessed you this year financially and you're just in a position to do that, that's awesome. Uh, or if you feel like you need a little bit more time that you could fulfill it by the end of next year, by two, end of 2022. So whatever uh, position that you're in, uh, we are encouraging you to make some kind of commitment to, um, to renovate. And uh, if you didn't get a card uh, last week or you didn't bring back a card or you weren't here last week and you don't know kind of what that's all about, you can pick up a card on your way out. You can pick up a brochure on your way out. If you're watching online, all the information is online. You can make a pledge online. So lots of different ways to get involved in this really, really important initiative. Okay, so we're starting a new series this week and uh, it's in the book of Ezekiel. I've I mentioned last week, I've never preached a series from the book of Ezekiel before. So I'm really excited about that. And just to give you a little context, we ended our Exodus series by talking about the tabernacle. 
and talking about how the last part of the book of Exodus is all about the tabernacle and what's in the tabernacle and the furnishing of the tabernacle and how the tabernacle is to be constructed because the tabernacle was a vehicle for experiencing the presence of God. Like that's how Exodus ends. Now we come to the book of Ezekiel and Ezekiel is written, hundreds of years have passed since the events that took place in Exodus. The Israelites have left the wilderness. They've settled in the promised land, the land that God promised for them on the west side of the Jordan River. They built a temple because they don't need a mobile tabernacle. They don't need a tent anymore that they can, that can travel with them because they're now in one spot. So they built a tabernacle. They built a city, the city of Jerusalem. They built strong walls around the city to protect it from their enemies. They've done all of that. So things are like awesome from the perspective of they have a nation now, they have a land now, they have a city now, they have walls, they have a temple, they have like everything you would want. But they are living in disobedience to God. And because they're living in this kind of ongoing state of disobedience to God, they are overpowered by the Babylonian Empire. And many of the young men and women uh, are taken into exile. Now, the next time that the Babylonian Empire comes, they destroy the temple, they destroy the walls, they destroy the city of Jerusalem. But this first time that they come to Babylon, all they do is basically come in and exile and take away really some of the brightest and the best that are in Jerusalem. And they take them in exile to Babylon. And one of the individuals taken into exile is this young priest by the name of Ezekiel. And the book begins, Ezekiel basically begins five years after all of this has taken place. Ezekiel is sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal in Babylon near the refugee camp where all the Israelites are. All the Israelites are refugees in Babylon. And uh, in addition to all of that, uh, if that's not like bad enough, it's his 30th birthday. Like happy birthday, Ezekiel. It's his 30th birthday, the year that he would have been installed formally as a priest in Jerusalem. So Ezekiel, along with the rest of the Israelites who have been exiled, are now a people without a country, a people without a city, a people without a temple. And they are wondering, really, and Ezekiel is wondering, how are they going to experience the intimate presence of God? How are they going to experience the glory of God again without the temple? without the Holy of Holies, without the Ark of the Covenant, because it was on the Ark of the Covenant upon which the, the glory of God manifested itself. The, the intimate presence of God was represented by the temple. So how are we gonna experience the intimate presence of God without the temple, without the Ark of the Covenant, without the Holy of Holies? And Ezekiel, in addition to that, is no doubt wondering how... Is he going to live out God's plan for his life to be a priest? Remember, he's a priest, and he would have been appointed and formally placed in that role had he been in Jerusalem. He's a priest with no temple. Because without a temple, who needs priests to serve in the temple? And so it's like everything that he has positioned himself for, everything that he has trained for, everything that he has been involved with like, here's where my life is going. All of it now seems to be changed. And the reality is that, you know, a lot of us at times find ourselves in that 
situation. And maybe you find yourself in that situation like right now. Uh, you have this vision for how, we have this vision about how our life is going to go. We have this vision about what we're supposed to do, what our vocation's gonna be, what it's gonna look like, all of that. We prepare for that. And then all of a sudden, things change. Circumstances change. Our relationships change. The world changes like it has over the last two years. And what we saw ourselves doing with our lives like doesn't make sense anymore, right? And like Ezekiel, we're left wondering, like, what's next? Like, how am I supposed to use this degree I earned? How am I supposed to use this experience I've gained? How am I supposed to use everything that seemed to have been positioning me for a particular direction in life? And now, all of a sudden, all of that has been turned upside down. But God had a different plan for Ezekiel than to be a priest. God wanted Ezekiel to be a prophet. See, we forget about that, that we talk about Ezekiel the prophet, and we don't realize that for the first 30 years of his life, that was not the direction he saw his life going. Like he was a priest. He was gonna serve in the temple. And now he's been taken away from the temple. There's no need for a priest, and God wants him to be a prophet. God wanted Ezekiel to deliver a message of repentance and hope to the Israelites. Ezekiel thought he was gonna be a priest, but what God was calling him to be was a prophet. Now, here's what's interesting about this. If Ezekiel had become a priest, we probably would have never heard of him. We probably wouldn't be talking about him today. But as a prophet, we're still reading his words like thousands of years later. And he's still having an impact thousands of years later. Something I'm sure he never could have imagined sitting on the bank of an irrigation canal in Babylon completely separated from the temple. Now, that doesn't mean that God's plan for our lives like always ends out the same way. It doesn't mean that it's God's plan for our lives always ends in notoriety and recognition and, and global impact and all of that. What it does mean is that no matter how awesome our plans are, God's plans are better. We just sang about the fact that God is better and his plans are better. And no matter how awesome our plans are for our life, God's plans are are always better. So if your plan for your life isn't working out exactly the way that you thought it would, and I can't tell you how many conversations I have with folks who is just like, the biggest disappointment I'm going through right now is that my, this is not the life I envision. These are not the experiences I envision. This is not how I thought I'd be spending my time, my energy. Like, this is not the life that I envision. So if the plan for your life isn't working out exactly the way you thought it would, don't focus on what you thought would happen but didn't. Focus on what is happening and how God can use it. Like, God's plans are always better than our plan. So if life is not going exactly the way that you thought that it should go, don't focus on what you thought would happen, but it didn't happen. Focus on what is happening, the reality of now, and how God can use this. Can you imagine if God came to Ezekiel? We're gonna talk about the vision with this vision and him wanting him to be a prophet, and Ezekiel said, nope, I'm called to be a priest. Like, God, no, no, thank you. Like, what he would have missed out on. And so often we miss out 
on the incredible plans that God has for our life because we are so obsessed with what we thought would happen and didn't that we miss what is happening and what God can do with. Can I get an amen for that? Like that is just so true. Now, um, Ezekiel, as Ezekiel's sitting there, he has this vision. He sees this storm cloud that is coming kind of out of the desert and inside the cloud is all of this very strange stuff. Uh, it's apocalyptic literature. We talked about apocalyptic literature when we uh, read Revelation. It's symbolic. It means things, uh, it, but it's weird, okay? So that's just the nature of apocalyptic literature, just kind of weird. And here's how Ezekiel describes it. We're just gonna kind of, I'm gonna kind of read the whole vision that he has, which is a lot of stuff, and just kind of unpack it a little bit and then talk about what that means. Here's how Ezekiel describes it. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed with burnished bronze. And under their wings, on their four sides, they had hands, the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead, but they did not turn as they moved. So the vision starts with these four living creatures, right? And each of them has four wings that, that when... Some of the wings are like stretched out. They touch the wings of the angel or the, the, uh, the, the cherubim. They're called later in the book, the, the living creature. They touch the wings of the living creature that is beside them. So to make that happen for all four, it, it, it's like they formed a square with their wings. And so you kind of had these four living creatures with their wings outstretched and facing in four different directions and, and forming this kind, of, this kind of square. And each of the four living creatures had four faces, apparently all facing in a different direction, one facing north and south and one east and one west. And then, starting in verse 10, we read this. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man. On the right side had the face of a lion. On the left had the face of an ox. And also each had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out uh, upward. Each had two wings, one touching the wing of another creature. On the other side, two wings covering its body. And each one went ahead, and wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. And the appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches, fire moving back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it, and the creature sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. So there's these four creatures and four faces on each of the living creatures. One's the face of a man, one's the face of an ox, one's the face of a lion, one is the face of an eagle. And the living creatures are filled with this brightness, this, this consuming brightness that's like fire and lightning that's moving back and forth among them. It is this incredibly brilliant scene. And then Ezekiel says, verse 15, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. 
And this was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike, and each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel, a wheel within a wheel. And they moved, and they would go in one of the four directions the creatures faced, and the wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. So on the ground, near each of the four living creatures who have their, their wings out extended that are kind of forming this, this square, um, and there are these four wheels, and inside each wheel is like another wheel that intersects it. In other words, it went in another direction, and that allowed the four living creatures to move in all different directions, and the rims of the wheels are full of eyes, so nothing is outside of the view of these creatures. And then Ezekiel tells us this in verse 22. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures what uh, and spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling with ice and awesome. And under the expanse of their wings were stretched out one another toward the other, and each one had two wings covering its body. And when the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult, tumult of an army. And when they stood still, they lowered their wings, and when they came uh, and then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. So spread out above these four creatures with their wings, you know, extended and touching each other, like almost like resting on their wings that forms this square is this kind of platform that Ezekiel describes as an expanse that is sparkling it's awesome looking, it's mesmerizing, you can't take your eyes off of it, and when the whole platform moves, Ezekiel says, there is this intense, almost deafening sound that sounds like the roar of an ocean or an impending army, an army that's charging into battle. And then, the culmination of this vision, Ezekiel sees this. Above the expanse, over the heads, was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. And I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. So all of a sudden, this fascinating, complex, hard to imagine, filled with imagery, hard to connect the dots, all of that, all of a sudden, Ezekiel realizes what he is seeing. And he calls it the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. It's God riding his royal throne chariot. And that's especially shocking to, 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 to Ezekiel. And the reason that it's shocking to Ezekiel is because what is God's glory? He sees the glory of God. And what is shocking to Ezekiel 
is what is the glory of God doing in Babylon? Like God's glory is supposed to be above the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God's glory resides. God's glory is supposed to be in the Holy of Holies in the temple. That's where God's glory is supposed to reside. So what is God's glory doing in Babylon? But what God is reminding Ezekiel of is that even though there is no temple in Babylon, God is still present with his people. His glory is not limited to a particular space. His glory is not limited to a particular region. It is everywhere, moving everywhere, seeing everything, lighting up all of the darkness that is out there. It is everywhere, every place, even in Babylon. If there's any place where Ezekiel and the people of God would have assumed God was not and the glory of God was not, it would have been in Babylon because Babylon was like the farthest place they could imagine, the darkest place they could imagine, far from the temple, far from the Ark of the Covenant, far from the Holy of Holies, far from everything that they had come to know and was familiar to them. And here in Babylon is the glory of God. Now, let me just lift up three things as we kind of start this series and lay this stuff out. Three things that this vision, I think, is teaching us about God. The first is this. This is not a tame God. <laughs> this is not a God you can control. When Ezekiel describes what he's seeing, he describes it as the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. He's saying that even this extraordinary vision is inadequate to communicate the glory of God. Like he has seen this amazing vision. I don't know when the last time was that you saw a vision like that, but he has seen this amazing vision and he says, even this amazing vision with all of its detail and the fire and the light and the movement and the eyes and all of that, all of this detail, all this amazing is inadequate to fully communicate the glory of God. He's saying that the glory of God is indescribable. It goes beyond words. It goes beyond images. The closest that he could get to it is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. This is not a God. What Ezekiel is pointing out and what this vision is reminding us that this is not a God that you can figure out. This is not a God that you can control. This is not a God who is, this is a God who is way bigger than your ability to comprehend him. And insisting that everything about God, how he works, when he works, the way he works is something that you have to fully understand is like trying to fit the vastness of the ocean into a thimble. It's impossible to do. So we can grow in our understanding of God and God wants us to grow in our understanding of him, but we cannot limit God to our understanding of God. Like whenever we try to do that, we end up with a God who is small, who is manageable, 
and who is incapable of transforming our lives and transforming this world. That's the first thing. This is not a tame God. Second thing, and this is kind of a weird word maybe uh, to use in this context, but this, this is a, a weighty God, a, a weighty God. The Hebrew word for glory is uh, kavod, and it means weight. <laughs> that, that's what literally the word means, weight in the sense of substance, weight in the sense of importance. So to talk about the glory of God is to say that God matters. That's really what it means to talk about the glory of God, is to say that God matters, that God matters more than anything else. That in the song that we sing today, that God is better than anything else, that he matters more than anything else, that God is of supreme importance. And when something matters more to us than God, then we are giving that thing, like whatever it is, the glory that God rightfully deserves, right? It's great to be like, like it's great to be in a relationship with someone that you, you really like. Maybe you're in a dating relationship and, and it's just like awesome and be in a relationship with someone like you really, really like and that can be incredible. But like if that person breaks up with you and you're not sure that you can go on living without them, then it means that you've given that person too much glory. Like you have given that person too much weight in your life. Or if you've become convinced that you are a person of worth only because certain people like you or only because certain people respond to you in the way that you want them to respond to you, then you have given those people too much glory. You have given those people too much weight in your life. If anything matters to you, more than God, your kids, your husband, your wife, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your job, your possessions, your success, your vocation, whatever it is, if anything matters to you, if anything has more weight in your life, if anything has more glory in your life than God, then you have given that thing too much glory. You have placed on it a weightiness that only God deserves. That's the second thing. Third thing is this that God's glory leads somewhere. That God's glory leads to repentance, confession and repentance, and it leads to grace. And you can't separate those two. That God's glory leads to repentance and it leads to grace. Look at how Ezekiel responds to seeing the glory of God. Look at verse 28 again. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, look at what he did. I fell down, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now, what does it mean to fall face down before the Lord? Well, it, it means to surrender yourself, it means to lay yourself before God, but it also means, it just means to humble yourself before the Lord. It means to become aware, to fall face down before the Lord is to become aware of your own brokenness. Here's the deal, you can't grasp the glory of God and not get in touch with your own sinfulness. Like you cannot grasp the glory of God and not get in touch with your own brokenness, your own darkness. Like it's impossible to grasp the glory of God, to be in the presence of the Holy God and not be in touch with your own brokenness. Look at Isaiah's response. Just like Ezekiel, 
when Isaiah comes into the presence of the holy God and he comes face to face with the glory of God. Look at what he says in Isaiah 6, verse five. Woe to me. That's his, that's his response in being in the presence of the holy God. Woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is an act of confession. It's an act of repentance. Being in the intimate presence of the holy God has made Isaiah profoundly aware of his own sinfulness, of his own brokenness, of the darkness that's in his own life, of his own unholiness. And that's true for all of us. Like, you cannot enter into the presence of God. You cannot experience the glory of God and not deal with your own sin. Like, you can't come face to face with God's purity and not become profoundly aware of your own impurity. It's just the nature of coming into the presence of a holy God. That's why repentance is such an important part of experiencing the presence of God, of experiencing the glory of God and seeing the glory of God. So often we want to experience, we want to jump a step. <laughs> like we all want to experience the presence of God. We want to see the glory of God, but sometimes we want to jump a step in order to do that, we want to experience God's intimate presence without doing the work of repentance, like without acknowledging our brokenness and being willing to turn from it. Repentance is what knocks us off our high horse and takes away all of our self-righteousness. Like there is nothing, as you read through the Old Testament to the New Testament, you get to the Apostle Paul, and, and Paul is talking about the things that keep us from experiencing God's salvation, his salvific work in our lives, his, his, his uh, presence in our lives. For Paul, it all comes down to self-righteousness. It is our... It's our idea that somehow we can save ourselves, somehow we are good enough, somehow we don't need a savior, we don't need someone to rescue us, we have our act together. Like Those are the things that stand in the way of the presence of God in our lives. And what repentance does is knocks us off our high horse and takes away all of our self-righteousness. Isaiah said, it's interesting, he says two things. Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Now, we live in a culture, come on, let's just be honest. We live in a culture that has no problem talking about the unclean lips of other people. Like, we have no problem. Almost all of the posts on social media are focused on what? The unclean lips of other people the judgment of other people, but people who are consumed with judgment, people who are consumed with disdain for others are not experiencing the glory of God in their own lives. Like if we wanna see God's glory, if we want to experience God's presence, we have to admit that we too have unclean lips. Isaiah doesn't just say, oh, I live among all these people with unclean lips. How terrible it is that I have all these people around me and I post about them so everybody knows about all their unclean lips and I want everyone to know it's really important that everyone knows about the unclean lips. No, Isaiah says, I wanna start with me. 
Woe is me, because I am a person of unclean lips. He starts, he starts with his own brokenness. Is that if we want to see the glory of God, if we want to experience God's presence, we have to admit that we too have unclean lips, that we need to confess. We need to be confessing people, not just one time at one moment in our life and then like it's all done. Like we need to live a life of confession. We need to repent. We need to live a life of repentance because when we come face to face with our own brokenness, we experience God's presence in a fresh way. See, confessing our sins and repenting of our sins is not about like wallowing in. That's the, that's the thing within culture that we get so, such a mixed message or such a, such a wrong message about what it means to confess and what it means to own our failures and what it means to own our sin. And we're dealing with this on so many levels as a culture. I could go, go through like all the things where there are things that we need to repent of, things that we need to confess individually, as a culture, as a nation, whatever it is, and there's a resistance to do it because there's this sense of, oh, if we confess, if we repent, if we own it or whatever, we're just wallowing in our shame or we're wallowing in our guilt and we need to not wallow in our guilt, we need to move past our guilt, move past our shame, can't we get past all of that? No, confessing our sin Repenting of our sin is not about wallowing in shame and guilt. It's about experiencing the presence of God in a fresh new way. And it's about experiencing the grace of God. The other thing that happens when we come face to face with our own brokenness is that we experience God's grace in a fresh new way. Look again at verse 28. Like the appearance of of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around God. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Ezekiel says that the glory of the Lord was like a rainbow in the sky. You remember the last time in the Old Testament that you saw a rainbow in the sky. God was judging the evil on the earth with a flood. And after the judgment of the flood, Noah builds an altar and offers a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And after the sacrifice that is offered for the sins of the people, God says this, verse 13 of Genesis 9, I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The rainbow was a sign of God's grace. And now here in Ezekiel, Ezekiel says that the glory of God is like a rainbow in the sky. Now, what's interesting is that the Hebrew word that it's translated rainbow, we see in our English translation is rainbow in both of those here. Um, in Genesis 9 and here is actually the word that's used to describe a war bow, like the kind of bow that was used in battle, the kind of bow that 
you use to shoot arrows at someone else. Like those of you who are bow hunters are going, that is not the way you shoot a bow and arrow, right? So, but that's, that's actually, it's the same word that's used to describe a war bow. So when God says to Noah, I'm going to set my bow, my war bow in the clouds, it was a promise of peace. It was a promise of grace. Now, here's what's interesting, just kind of looking at this metaphor, right? What's interesting is that when you look at a rainbow, not only is it the shape, I don't know if you've ever thought about when you saw a rainbow about the fact that it's the shape of a bow, right? Not only is it the shape of a bow, it's the shape of a bow that is pointing up and not down. Like if it was pointing down, that might make us a little nervous, right? If it was pointing down, it would be as if God is saying, well, the bow may be in the sky. Like I I put the bow in the sky, but as soon as you mess up, like I'm ready to let some arrows fly. And some of you have maybe lived your whole experience, even, even after you've come to faith in Christ, lived your whole experience in relationship with God, that that's the way you think about God. You think about God up in heaven just waiting for you to make some mistake so that he can let the arrows fly. But the way this war bow, this rainbow is facing is up. And the only place that the arrows can go are heavenward. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus went to the cross. Is that the arrows of judgment the arrows of punishment, the arrows of justice, all of that went heavenward. That Jesus on the cross took the arrows that we deserved. And because of that, Paul says in Romans 8, therefore, there is now no... See, the promise of grace in the rainbow is not just the promise that there won't be a flood again. It's the promise of no condemnation. It's the promise of grace. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. The glory of God leads to repentance and repentance leads to grace. And grace leads to Jesus, who is the source of all grace. So I just want to end by asking you a question. And it's a bold question. And maybe for some of you, it will take you back a little bit or say, well, that's kind of a harsh question, Rod, to ask, but... I want to ask you this question. Is there any sin in your life? Any attitude? Any behavior? Any brokenness? That is keeping you from experiencing the intimate presence of God? Like when you look at what's going on in your life and you say, yeah, I I want to experience God's intimate presence. Doesn't seem like I am experiencing God's intimate presence. Is there any sin 
any action, any behavior, any attitude that is keeping you from experiencing his presence and experiencing his glory. And if so, God invites you to confess it, to repent of it, and to experience the grace that is found in the one who took all the arrows on our behalf so that we could experience the intimate presence and glory of God. God, we want to experience your presence. We want you to matter to us. We want to know your glory, your weightiness, for you to be more important to us than anything else. But we confess that sometimes that is not true. And we confess that sometimes there are things in our lives that keep us from experiencing your intimate presence. And so, Lord, in the sacredness of this moment, whether we're watching online, whether we're in the blue seats here, wherever we are, you know our heart, you know what we're struggling with, you know what we're going through. And, Lord, we confess whatever it is that is keeping us from experiencing your presence. And we don't just confess it, we repent, we want to turn away from it. And we do that not to wallow in shame or guilt, but to be set free to experience you in fresh new ways and to experience your grace in fresh new ways. Because nothing, nothing is greater and more beautiful than the name of Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who sets us free. And so we celebrate, Lord, who you are. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.